I am Michael. I'm an entrepreneur, terrible investor lately, pawn shop owner, improv artist, stand-up comedian in training. And as always, I am very, very, very neurotic. And I'm a TV host and your host right now for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It is a Dweebs Global production. That is why we do the podcast. Dweebsglobal.org. They give free mentorship help for people around the world. Anything from resume writing to mental health. And it is completely free, completely confidential, completely free. Dweebsglobal.org. So today I am here with Dr. Jan Cathy. Jan's story is not an easy one to hear, but it's important to tell. To help others that have gone and will go and will go through similar events. Jan earned her PhD in psychology, opened her own practice, and everything changed when her husband of 11 years was murdered. The media and press hounded her for a long time. The trials and convictions followed. And when all was said and done, she was left alone to start over with the immense burden of what she had just gone through. And she's pretty much dedicated her life to help others that are going through the same thing right now. So thank you, Jan, for being here with us. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's going to be a tough subject for me to cover because that's something I'm used to talking about. I know in your podcast, it's something you almost talk about on a daily basis. Yeah, you grow into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you ever get used to talking about it? Is it a... Uh, I find it's the easiest to talk about with other people who've been through it than anybody else. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. I, you know, different things in my life have happened and it's, it, there's something... Uh, therapeutic about talking to other people who have gone through something yep. similar. Yeah. Um, so what, what did happen? What happened to your husband? Um, well, uh, I learned, let me clarify in, in the beginning that I did not know a lot of this as it was unfolding. I it took me about a year and a half after he was murdered to put the pieces together. Okay. So if I were to tell it from the perspective of what I knew then, I wouldn't be able to say much. All I'd be able to tell you is that he did fail to come home one night and it was a very stormy night. I remember that day clearly because I was watching a three hour special for AIDS uh, to build up money for AIDS and research. It was a three hour special broadcast in simultaneously in London and the United States called Live AIDS. So I lost track of time. And when I looked up, it was dark and he was way overdue, which was not like him. Right. When I tried to report him to the substation near our our building where we worked the next morning, they wouldn't take a report. They were quite rude to me, actually. Really? Saying that, well, you know, go check the morgue. And they didn't really? want to hear. Yeah, that's, they were real flippant about it. Yep. So I thought, well, okay, it has to be 24 hours. So I just went to another police station and I said, I haven't seen him in 24 hours, which was true. Mm -hmm. So they took the report, but that was the end of it. Nothing unfolded for another week. My parents flew in. And a following week, I got a call to come down to the Detroit police station to meet with Inspector Gil Hill. I'm sorry to stop you right there. But what were you feeling during that week? That, like, like I was in somebody else's life. Like, what the heck? I, I, I felt like part of me was sensing it was going to be end up bad because it was so out of character. But my life had been pretty straightforward and uneventful up to then. So I didn't want to get dramatic about it and think the worst immediately. Right. So I kind of vacillated between those two mindsets. So when I was called down to police headquarters and I met with Inspector Gil Hill, who, by the way, had just come off the movie set with uh, Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop 1. He played Inspector Todd, his boss. And he's okay. just like that in real life. He's oh, very... Really? short on words and he's tall and lanky and has an intensity about him just like the guy in the in the movie 
At any rate, he said in a very few words, he said, you know, we have reason to believe your husband's been murdered. We don't have his body yet. And back in 1985, when this unfolded, you needed a body to prosecute for murder because DNA evidence wasn't then what it is today. Right. And then he told me that my husband had been seen in an area called the Cass Corridor, which is then at that time, one of the worst areas of Detroit. It was known for drug sales and gun sales and prostitution and any other kind of crime you might want to get involved in. I mean, the area around our building, which we worked in, which was near the Cass Corridor, had 1,300 prostitutes within a three-mile area. They walked the streets and so the area where you, so this, this was not a, the area where you lived though. This was, or no. worked. this was, yes. we lived on the Northern edge of this and it was like uh, the Berlin wall. I mean, once you crossed over West Grand Boulevard, it changed dramatically. And we lived in a, we worked in a very beautiful building. In fact, it was voted one of the world's most beautiful office buildings <laughs> when it was erected. It was built by uh, Kahn, Albert Kahn in 1923, I believe beautiful building, but it was surrounded with a lot of garbage and, and all, all, everything that went with it. Gotcha. So who saw your husband over there? Were they looking for him at that time, showing his picture? Or... Well, I didn't know it then, but yes, there was a confidential informant that called Inspector Gil Hill and said that she had heard rumors that John Fry and Don Marie Spence had taken his car, which then led to more surveillance because I had already put in the missing persons report. And then when they got the surveillance, other people, it turns out, were willing to come forward and speak up because they were so scared of John Fry. It was an unusual situation. There wasn't typically a lot of cooperation was between Don, the people in the area. Not just Don Fry, like a mafia guy, or is he? Like no, he a, was just a, a thug, a big thug. A big thug. Uh, he looked the part. He was big and burly and liked to shove his weight around and, People were scared of him and he had a reputation for killing people when he wanted to. Really? Yeah. And so because they saw this, the people saw this as an opportunity to get rid of him, they came forward and it worked because one thing led to another. And the same thing happened with one of their accomplices, because what John and Don, John Fry and Don Spens did that night was they they demanded money from him, which he didn't have, and that they were high, as of course, they were always high, and that infuriated him. So they hit him over the head with a baseball bat and knocked him out, slugged him several times with the bat, and then dismembered him. Wow. And then they packaged him in a suitcase in three different packages, drove him north to Petoskey, Michigan, and on the way, tossed out his unidentifiable body parts on the freeway and then buried his identifiable body parts up north near Petoskey in an area owned by the University of Michigan Biologic Station, which was a place reserved for research. And they would deposit, um, they were studying mosquitoes at the University of Michigan there, and they would deposit roadkill on the property as to draw the mosquitoes so they could do the research. So it was a perfect place to dispose of his body. Right. They had researched this, I guess. They must have. Uh, they must have thought about it ahead of time. Well, the accomplice that helped bury him lived near there. That's the reason they went north. Okay. And then he started hearing things on the news and he thought, you know, they're going to come for me if I don't turn myself in. So he did. And I think had he not, they never would have figured it out. Oh, really? So that's that's how they ended up finding yep. his identifiable parts. So what else did you, so you, you, at this point, you thought you were living a normal. Yeah. 
but I wasn't. I right. mean, for the previous 18 months, he'd been living a double life as a Dr. Miller, who was a physician, which was totally untrue, and uh, giving them money and buying them drugs. He didn't take them himself, but he sure sabotaged any attempts they made to get clean and sober. And when he gave them over, and this is again, 1985 dollars, he gave them about 150 grand. So who was he? I'm sorry, who he was buying drugs from these drug dealers? My husband was purchasing drugs for John Fry oh. and Don Spence to keep them involved in the drugs. And he so, wanted to sabotage their getting clean and sober because it met his needs. What he wanted was an automatic built-in audience, I believe, to admire him and to listen to him and to be at his beck and call. So I, so these guys were just thugs. They weren't drug yeah. dealers. They were just thugs no, in the area. They were that, drug users. Right. Okay. And so your, your husband at the time, he found, I guess, a drug dealers to buy these drugs from and yep. then he'd bring them to, or they'd go all together and get them. Okay. All That's such a, it's such a strange thing to imagine that he went from his normal everyday life to all of a sudden working with thugs. Except that it wasn't that unusual. When I was called down to the morgue to identify his identifiable body parts, Detective Landeros told me at that point, she said, we know it's him because we have fingerprint data from him going back several years where he was arrested for solicitation. And this would have been three years into our marriage. So I had no idea this was his lifestyle. This was what he liked to do. He always had to have some intrigue going on on the side. Right. And I said, then why do you need me to identify him if you know it's him? And she said, because we need it for court and we need you to realize he's never coming home. Got you. Um, did, looking back on it, were there any signs that you missed that you now see? I get that question a lot. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I think implied in that is it was kind of obvious, but the only thing well, he was 18 years, my senior. Yeah. Can't say it was obvious. I mean, people are very good at hiding things. So uh, he, he was. That's not necessarily anything that was obvious. Well, I, I think the fact that he was older, I ought to, when I, when I saw he was kind of growing preoccupied or tired or more, a little more distant, I thought it was his health. And he had quit smoking because I asked him to, and that made him cranky. So I attributed it to physical changes. Plus, I wasn't home a lot. I was in the midst of my postdoctoral fellowship at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I was gone. I mean, I was working 80-hour weeks trying to get through my fellowship. And I'd had to take breaks because I'd been sick. So I was really behind, and I wanted to get it done on time if I could. So we were like ships passing in the night. And in that time frame, his father had passed away. So he was going over to his mom's house to help her with grocery shopping and other errands. So we really didn't see a lot of each other that year preceding his death. Gotcha. So when the subtle signs were there, like, and I mean, subtle, like he'd, he'd be in front of the TV or he'd take a long bath or he'd, he'd go to bed early. He was just uh, evasive and preoccupied and, and didn't have a lot of energy. That's how I saw it. Got you. Um, Oh, right, so this happened and now you've learned your husband wasn't the man that he was. So now no, that's no. got to be its own morning. It was. And it was very public. It all unfolded in front of the media. I mean, literally, I, I after I made his identification and started my way out of the medical examiner building, this was early on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. The press was already there with their cameras, their tripods, their boom uh, for the microphones. 
And I was so unaware of it that I started out the door and Detective Landeros kind of tapped me on my shoulder and turned me around and took me out the back. But they were on my heels for a long, long time after that. I didn't that then realize why they were so relentless. I mean, after three, four months, you think it would cool down. But right. what happened, I realized later, was that there was one reporter who wanted to write a book. So every little thing that developed was in the news. And he kept it going and kept it going. And, and some of the things were eventful, like John Fry did escape, but they caught him and brought him back. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it was like I couldn't escape them. And as a result, people were driving by my house and taking pictures. I couldn't go into a store without people pointing. And I felt and they even published a map to my house in the Detroit News. Wow. It took front page at one point. So after a year and a half of that, I moved. I I had trouble selling my house because at that time, and I think it's still true today in Michigan and other states, if there's a crime associated with the owner of the property, even if it did not take place in the property, you have to disclose that to a potential real estate buyer, in which case it devalues the property. And of course, it gives you less privacy, but that's the law. And in case they're suspicious, and if they, if you don't, if you fail to do that, they can rescind the purchase at any time. In I the would future. think, it, God, I would think it would just be if it happened at the house. You would think, think. Yeah. you would think, but no. So I had trouble selling the house, and finally moved, and it still kept up. So I finally decided the only way I was going to get back on my feet was to leave altogether, and I did not want to. I. That's where I was born and raised. My friends were there and my education. I had, my, I had just started my practice, but I thought I can't live like this. I've got to go. So I packed everything up and sold and moved and started over and did not speak of it for 30 years. Wow. What were they, were they trying to dig something out of you, trying to see if you knew more than what you were saying? They were, they, I guess they were. I think they liked the salacious angle of it. Oh, a, a yeah. fall from grace. I mean, there's a definite pattern to what kind of crime stories make the news and which ones do not. Mm-hmm. And I checked a lot of the boxes. So that was part of it. And part of it was this one reporter that wanted to write the book that kept it going. And I'd had my fill of it and I was tired of it. That's why I didn't even go to the trial because I thought this just gives them an op- another opportunity to follow me and question me. And I'm not going to be there, their story of the week. I don't want to be a part of this. And nothing would change as a result of the trial anyway. My life wouldn't change. Right. There's this big myth that I can't speak long enough about the, the idea that a trial brings closure. That is pure BS because I, it does not. That's interesting. I never understood that to no. me. It always seemed like how, how can that be? That never, it, it isn't it. And, and furthermore, homicide survivors, generally speaking, are looked at as an accessory. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean legally, but like you are not wanted in the courtroom. They don't want you in the courtroom, the prosecution, nor the defense, unless you're on the witness stand or unless you're charged with the crime, because you're thought of as distracting. Right. And the ACLU tries to keep homicide survivors out of the courtroom because they believe it does not lend itself to a fair trial for the for the uh, person accused. So it's clearly something between the state and the uh, person sitting at the defense table. It's not, it's out of my hands. It's out of their hands and you're not wanted. And so why go? Right. It's not for you at all. So at this point, are you, are you sad that you've lost your husband? Are you more angry that he lived this alternate life? That's a good question. I, 
I did not know the words for it at the time, but now I know, looking back, what I was going th through was a particular kind of grief called conflicted grief. There's different kinds of grief, probably eight different kinds of grief. Conflicted grief is, I don't, I don't think it's as rare as people think it is. Conflicted grief is when you have mixed feelings about the person that died. You have relief in the grief. You also have the grief. You also have the mourning and the sorrow and the sadness and all the typical stuff that you associate with a death. But in addition to that, there's this part of you that feels relief because it's over. It might be, for example, somebody you love who's been in horrific pain and they want to die and they finally do. There's a part of you that goes, wow, I'm glad they're not suffering anymore. Mm -hmm. I sure miss them. Well, that's conflicted grief too. So part of me was very angry and there's no resolution. You can't, I can't dig them up and say, Hey, what are you doing? Right. I have questions. Only you can answer them. It's, I just got to live with the questions and nobody will be able to answer them. Really. I just have to piece, piece them together as best I can. So I felt angry. I felt embarrassed. I felt confused. I felt exhausted. And by the time I went to the preliminary exam, I was very mad. Uh, because I thought these people have taken everything from me. They've taken my privacy, my health, our money, my husband, my residence, my practice. And I was, ups I was really upset. But Detective Landeros, who was just an amazing detective, she said, if you start to lose your focus, look at me and I'll help you from a distance. And she did. That's and right. I got through that testimony. That was the only time I'd seen them in person, the two defendants. And uh, John Fry looked like a disheveled Mr. Clean. <laughs> he had the bald head and the earring and the burly chest and the and kind of this big guy, you know, motorcycle guy. And she looked like a balloon with the air popped out of it. She was small and greenish gray, probably from illness and frazzled hair and just. Ugh. So they like a cut were they like a couple. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they and were she was prostituting for him and supplying him with drugs. And oh, wow. she was a lot younger than him. And he was a career pimp. And she was seven, I think eight, 17 or 18 when she came to know him. Gotcha. She was a valedictorian when she dropped out of high school to be with him. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Such potential. Yeah. And I know my, I know how my brain works. I have a problem with rumination and I know like, the questions would haunt me for years, just one going over and imagining how the, the conversations would go. And, mm. and that's what would, I can, I know that's what would, would really dig into me. Um, you had mentioned that they took your money. Yeah. Well, he had given them money over the 18 months. He'd given them $150,000 of our money. And so when inspector Hill said, you better go check your finances because he had handled the bills and I had every reason to believe he was doing a decent job. We were, comfortable. I never had a bill collector call. There wasn't anything that was a red flag. I found out that not only had he given us our money, we were $30,000 in debt by 1985 standards. We were behind on income tax, mortgage payments, rent payments to the um, office, oh, wow. um, car payments, you name it. So he was giving them money just because he wanted- He to wanted a guaranteed audience. An audience. He wanted to be cool. He wanted yeah. to- yeah, he wanted to live vicariously through him. He, I met uh, later with a friend of his from high school who knew him in high school, and he said he'd always had this unhealthy attraction to the seedy side of life. Um, his father was a worked with the police department and always 
would tell these stories about the police department and the convicts that he worked with. And I think he kind of admired that in them. I don't know for sure, but I do know this, that when we met, you know, I was a high school grad and while we were married, I got my bachelor's, my master's, my doctorate, my postdoctorate. And I essentially didn't, um, I didn't admire him in the same way I used to. I, by the end, I, I thought, well, he's pretty out of date with what's going on in the field. And I started to challenge him and say, well, what about neuroplasticity? Or what about the new pharmacological agents coming out? And he didn't know what I was talking about. And he did not like that. <laughs> and I think that's partly, I mean, that's a simplified example, but I think that's partly why he looked elsewhere for attention. It's not that we had open debates or conflicts that were huge. It was more in passing. I would like, I, I just saw him as not as all knowing as I once did when I was first met him years right. and years earlier. Well, a lot of times the mystery fades yeah. when you know yeah. somebody for a long time. And, you, and you're 18 years apart. A lot can change. I mean, he, he was slowing down and I wasn't, you know, it, it was just a kind of a perfect storm, really. Yeah, it sounds like you're almost blaming yourself a little bit, though, and that is not. No, <laughs> well, I felt like I let. Uh, this is going to sound silly, but I kind of felt like I let the profession down, because you look at most TV specials or mo Hollywood movies about psychologists, mm -hmm. and how do they portray them? They portray them as serial murderers, or they're sleeping with their patients. So they all got a screw loose, right? <laughs> and I'm like. Oh my God, I married one of those. <laughs> and, and here I am trying to be in training to be a psychologist and I missed it under my own roof. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, we're all, I think I talked about this in other podcasts and humans are so good at denial. They yeah. Just, like make up excuses for things and to overlook the yeah. obvious sometimes. And yeah. It's just, you don't want to see it. No, we're so good at that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved away and didn't talk about it. And I've, I, I was so, so be busy in the early years putting out fires. There was a threat of AIDS that passed, thank God. But I was being tested for AIDS. That went on for years. I had to rebuild my finances. I had, I mean, there was so many directions I was pulled into that I didn't even not have time to sit down and absorb everything that had happened and grieve the life I lost for years. And by that time, I'd relocated, so nobody knew me, which was part of the plan. So I had to do it in private, and this is before the internet, so there was nobody to connect with that I thought could remotely understand what I was going through. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, you know, it's up to me to fix me. I don't know who to go to because I don't, I mean, I, I wasn't living in a major metropolitan area, and it was a pretty rare situation. So I fell back on an old uh, mindset that I've used cl in clinical work, which is the biopsychosocial model, and which means basically that if you want to change your life, you want to change, improve your life, you look at things, what's going on biologically, psychologically, and sociologically, you look at all three. So I thought, okay, so biologically, I started going to the gym, I started doing triathlons. Sociologically, I started traveling the world and volunteering my time on different continents, helping oh, wow. to build girls schools. And I met amazing people in the process. I, I've been to five continents and all of them were remote. I mean, places, <laughs> hours and days away from a near, air, nearby airport. And that's a, a whole nother show as to some of the things that happened. But right. 
I, I found that international travel helped me heal a lot, a huge amount, because it put my situation into perspective. It made me look at when I got home, I, 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 I would start to reflect on what I'd seen and the people I'd met. And I'm going, you know, I don't have it so bad. I got a roof over my head. I got clean water. I got paved roads. I've got the legal backing of the of, as a woman, I can still file charges. I have some say what goes on in my life. Mm -hmm. I have my health. I have my education. I've never been homeless. I'm physically healthy. What am I got to complain about? I've got a lot to be grateful for, in fact. And it really put it in perspective for me. So that helped me emotionally. So with the triathlon, I mean, it all came together and it was like, you know, I'm taking charge of my life and um, it's like my own second scene, you know, right. this is time to rebuild. And what do I want to, what do I want the second half of my life to be like? Mm-hmm. And it was a very conscious decision. I, I literally took out a map of the United States to figure out where I wanted to live and did it. And I took charge and I tried to use everything I learned to make a better life for me in the second half, whether that was to appreciate things I took for granted, like clean water, which I had taken for granted. I never thought about how much clean water we flush down the toilet every day, but it's nine gallons every time, you know? And um, I never thought about my rights as a woman that I, I don't have to stay married to somebody because somebody says I have to, you know, I can divorce if I want to. And, and I have my education. And if I want to see a doctor by gum, I can go see a doctor and I have health insurance and all of that. It really, it really put it into perspective. And I thought, I don't have it that bad. I don't. And I've got, find some way to make something positive come of that. That was my goal at that point in time. Cause I think the best revenge is success. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, that just uh, has to be so rewarding too. It felt like it wasn't wasted. It felt like, okay, you're going to throw this at me. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to make some good come out of it and you're not going to crush me. I will not be a statistic. I will not be a victim. And if, and then I thought, well, it's not enough. I want to not only use it for me, I want to find a way to use it to help other people in my shoes. And there is not a lot of help out there for other homicide survivors, even today, but it's better than it's been. It is, but we have a long way to go in many ways. And so I thought, well, I have a relative, Holly Dubois, she lives in uh, South Carolina, who does crime scene cleanup for a living. And she suggested the podcast idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything about podcast. I don't know anything about this. And I found that other podcasters are pretty generous with their time and very supportive. Oh, yeah. And it's like this cool little community. I didn't have any idea about, but they welcomed me with open arms. They got me off my feet and got me started. And it's now heard in 10 countries. Wow. And I have met my tribe. I mean, the people that I have met with and spoken with are amazing people. They've had our, our situations are unique. They're very different one from the other. But what I have found over the, doing these interviews for almost two years now is that while the situations themselves are unique, the aftermath is not. They're fairly predictable. The stigma that comes with it, the physical aftermath and so forth is all fairly predictable. But you don't know that going into it. You think it's just you. Right, right. Uh, in so many aspects of life, we can relate to other people that go through something different, but in the end, it's a yeah. shared feeling or shared results in a lot right. of ways. Right. Um, wow. It's amazing what you do with that podcast. And I know it, you've, you've also kind of covered in the podcast, other people that 
homicides affect, such as first responders, doctors, police. Because it affects people beyond the family. It affects witnesses. I mean, if you see somebody murdered, it affects you, even if you don't know the people. Or if you are the ER doc, or you are the homicide detective, or the victim advocate, or the grief therapist, or whomever, it still impacts you. And in fact, you could say that there's hardly a segment of society that isn't impacted in one way or another, because eventually it comes through our insurance premiums, if you really want to extend it. So I've had a lot of people on the show that might not be able to speak to a homicide in their own family, but they have been impacted in their line of work through being on the edge of a homicide. And that even comes with veterans with thick skin who've been at homicide detective work for decades. But even then, one or two is going to come along that just grabs them and they they feel bad that they weren't able to solve it or they feel bad that who would die. Maybe it was somebody that reminded them of their of their child or grandchild. Those are the tough cases, you know. Right. Um, and unfortunately, we're in a time in our society right now where homicides are on the rise. They have been in the last two years. We've gone up from 18,000 on average to 20,000 wow. on average a year. So uh, there's a greater need for services for homicide survivors too, but we don't hear about it. Right. Um, I'm guessing, uh, I, I don't know. I'm guessing people who have a loved one who commits suicide is are, it's probably pretty similar to. Uh, there's a lot of similarities there. Probably a biggest similarity is the stigma associated with it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you probably are only comfortable talking with other people who've been through it in your own shoes. And it's going to be similar in the sense of if you see the homicide or if you see the suicide, it's going to have a greater impact than if you only hear about it, let's say, or if you've had more than one in your family, that's going to have an impact. But one of the big differences, I think, is that they don't usually go through a trial. And when you go through a trial, which, by the way, is only 3% of homicides, 97% are resolved through a plea bargain. But if you go through a trial, you have to relive it through all the evidence, and it can be pretty grisly. And you hear the defense attorney trying to put blame on the victim, and it's not a pretty scene to go through at all. Right. Um, I, as I said, chose not to go through it at all, but some homicide survivors feel the need to be there every hour of every minute that they can be in the court. It's just their preference. Have you gone back through it? Yeah, I've read in, in uh, writing my book, I, I reread the whole court testimony. It was 11 pounds worth of paper. <laughs> and I read it line by line to find out what happened in my absence and what was testified to. And I, you know, it was pretty much what I expected. Um, the only real surprise in all of that was Detective Landeros, because with me, she was extremely kind, patient, professional. But when I read her interrogations of some of these people, I'm like, well, there was a whole other side to her I never saw. <laughs> that was a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> but um, since then, I, I'm now in the midst of another book, and I'm, I'm learning a whole lot more about court procedures and defense attorneys and wrongful convictions. And it's pretty complex when you get into it, the, the goings on in the criminal justice system. But basically what happens is, as a homicide survivor, is you have these systems crash into your life, whether it's the law enforcement, whether it's the criminal justice system, whether it's the media, these systems crash into your life. And then they're not there when you really need them, which is when the homicide is unsolved. Nobody's interviewing you and there's no trial and the police aren't investigating or so it appears. So you're kind of left high and dry. It comes in cycles Mm -hmm. and um, that can be a real letdown. 
I think it's especially hard if it's a wrongful conviction and you had any part in the eyewitness testimony. I mean, that happens to some people too. And it's just, I think society wants and expects a Hollywood ending and it's not neat and tied up at the end. It's not, and never will be. So you've written one book and you have another book you're in the process. I do. Uh, the, The first book is more like a true crime memoir. And my intent was to use my story as a springboard to discuss issues related to other homicide survivors, like the stigma that comes with it, the physical uh, repercussions and so on. Uh, The second one, it's about half done. It's going to be more of a nonfiction guide uh, from start to finish, like starting out with the death notification, going through crime scene cleanup, the media descending, cooperating with the police, uh, on and on down through things like the trial, if there is one, and um, long-term repercussions. So it's got, I don't know, it's about 20 chapters, I think it is at this point. And I've learned a whole bunch from doing it. I've interviewed different people. Like when I was speaking on the one chapter having to do with funerals, I interviewed, I found and interviewed. It was amazing. She was like finding a needle in a haystack. It was a funeral director who had a niece murdered. And so she got it. She knew what I was talking about. I learned more than I wanted to know about cremation and uh, body farms and all kinds of stuff. But I wanted to lay everything I could in this book. I wanted to channel everything I'd experienced, the people I'd interviewed, the research I'd done into one manual to say, here's your guide. This isn't meant to be a one size fits all. You know, there's going to be chapters that don't apply to you, like crime scene cleanup. That doesn't apply to everybody. But you can hunt and peck through the book and and figure out what sections do apply and and use it. And there's going to be a a large glossary and resource section at at the end as well. So if people have a particular area that they want to get more into, they can, it gives them started. And then of course, I, I recommend people use it in conjunction with experts in their life. So when we talk about, for example, the financial repercussions of being a homicide survivor, don't just take my word for it. Talk to your uh, CPA or talk to your tax person or your brother-in-law who is a, was a whiz on Wall Street, whatever. I'm not an expert in all these areas, but I, I know enough to get people started gotcha. and what they can do uh, to get their feet, their, their ship righted. It does sound like the resources are needed. Um, well, they so are. They are. Well, it's an amazing, the, the podcast you have, I listened to a little bit of it, and, uh, the people you've interviewed and the topics. I mean, it's, you you cover the gambit and it's really great that you're out there. Thank you. You're a beautiful person. You've uh, oh, adoptions you. that you've then the way you've turned around your life. And well, I feel whole. honored that people are that willing to open up and it's for the benefit of others. And it's humbling because you know, they've been through tough times and yet here they are standing straight and trying to do the right thing by it. And in fact, become advocates in their own way. Some have had scholarships and others have um, gone on speaking tours. Others have tried to change laws. I mean, there's just so many ways that people try to use their own experience for the betterment of others. And you don't know it's needed till you're in the position. Usually I didn't certainly till I was involved in it. Right. I'm I'm sure you've seen such strength. The the fact that you yeah. and these other people can, can pull their lives back together. And, but I think people somehow. have that in them. I don't think it takes a mark. I mean, if you look at, for example, the Boston marathon bombing, how people just rushed to help mm-hmm. you had 
people carrying people. You had people uh, or, or Pulse nightclub using their own vehicles to usher people to the hospital back and forth, back and forth for hours on it. Sometimes a crisis can bring out the best in people, no matter your background. Doesn't matter if you're you're out from prison, you still can jump in and help. And they do. And it, it sometimes brings people together and it really shows the backbone that people can have. Right, right, right. Well, it's, a, you know, it's an aspect of your show I hadn't even thought about, but just the showing, showing the great in people. I mean, just showing the world that there are amazing I people. I think people are way more resilient than they know they are. I really believe that. It just, sometimes you don't know till you're in hot water. That's one of my favorite sayings. It's like, uh, something like um, how to, uh, a woman is like a tea bag. She doesn't know her own strength until she's in hot water. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here yes. with me and being so open and sharing so much. Um, I, I, what you're doing is I'm sure helping an infinite amount of people. So I keep hope it going. So. hope so. And I hope it um, will cause other people to want to do the same because there sure is a great need for it. But I appreciate you having me on, Michael, and giving me a chance to talk about it. Of course. So you can find more about Jan, her books, her podcast at jancantyphd.com. That's J-A-N-C-A-N-T-Y-P-H-D.com. And I will post the link below. Um, so please go to it. And check her out. And okay, again, thank you. thank you. Yes. And everyone out there, again, this has been a Dweebs Global production. That's why we do the podcast, dweebsglobal.org. It's where you can get free mentorship help, anything from resume writing to mental health and whatever's in between, completely confidential, completely free, dweebsglobal.org. And we'll see you all next week.